Welcome to BioCentury This Week. I'm Jeff Cranmer, Executive Editor of BioCentury, and I'm joined by... Simon Fishburne, Editor-in-Chief. And Karen Koch-Tuzman, Senior Editor. On this week's pod, NCI Director Ned Sharpless tells BioCentury how he thinks FDA could expedite reviews of cancer and rare disease therapies. Plus, the pace of new modality approvals at FDA is picking up. Simone and Karen tell us what trends they're seeing. And for this week's deal and focus, five primes at times difficult 19 year history is ending with a bang, a nearly $2 billion buyout by Amgen. A word from our sponsor. BioCentury this week is brought to you by Icon, helping emerging biopharma meet their milestones to market. Icon offers a flexible partnership model for biotechs acting as a fully externalized project development team, starting in the preclinical phase to clinical research to real world studies through to commercialization. Learn more at iconplc.com slash biotech. Karen, you spoke with Ned Sharpless. What were the key takeaways from your conversation? Well, this was actually a conversation that started a year ago before the pandemic when he had just returned from his stint as acting FDA director after Scott Gottlieb left. And he had returned back to NCI. I asked him what some of his takeaways were. And one of the things he said was FDA was really in a place where it was facing the challenge of how to regulate N of one products. So things where the composition of the product might change from patient to patient, which can include cancer neoantigen products or products for rare diseases, specific mutations. He said the FDA was flummoxed. And now we reconnected and talked about how the platform technologies that are enabling rapid changes in vaccine modalities in response to variants lay the groundwork for addressing that end of one problem with the idea that if you have a regulatory pathway around a platform and you agree on what it takes to make updates to that platform for slightly different products, if we figure that out for the variants now, we could have learnings for how to do that for cancer mutations and rare diseases. Yeah, I thought it was interesting because I thought, are we actually going to have our first podcast where we don't talk about the coronavirus? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> you know, I, I think what's interesting is this idea that I've actually been hearing about in lots of different formats, even outside of biotech, where it is really the emergency of a situation that kickstarts or injects momentum into a long-standing problem that we've known about. And I think it's N of one is one way of thinking about it, but it's really personalized medicine writ large in a way, because these are all for decreasing and decreasing patient populations. I don't know if you have comments on that regarding precision medicine or targeted oncology. Well, it's interesting because you're playing at the two extremes here with COVID. Whatever happens is going to be applied to millions of people. It's about keeping up with variations in a virus versus this idea of going into more and more targeted patient populations. The regulatory frameworks for big populations and small populations will be different. But yeah, it is along the continuum of can personalized cancer therapies. How do you address very precisely 
the nature of someone's individual disease and can platform technologies that enable small tweaks on the same underlying scaffold be a way into that. Simone, congratulations. Last week, where you set a new world record for the longest ever caption for a data bite. So we started talking last week about new modalities in the wake of FDA's approval of Sarepta's Amandus 45 for DMD. That marked the ninth new modality drug to be approved in the past year. And Simone, you were planning to just knock out a really quick and dirty data bite. And then you started digging and digging and it it blew up. It, it was an awesome yeah. story. The story took over my week, but I have to say I was rewarded by Twitter where I think this was really only beaten by Harry and Meghan's Oprah interview. Um, <laughs> got a nice you'll, you'll never see Archie again, Simone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, that said, I think there's just tremendous interest. So I think the response was the sign of the huge interest in what's going on with new modalities. And actually, a lot of this taps into what Karen's just been talking about with individualized therapies in some case and the need for a regulatory path and so on. What I did was I looked at the drugs, not vaccines, okay, just drugs that have been approved by FDA, EMA, or in Japan, actually, in these six areas, antibody drug conjugates, ADCs, bispecific antibodies, gene therapies, antisense, CAR-Ts, and RNAIs. And that's our definitions at BioCentury of new modalities. And so a couple of top level things, 33 new modality drugs have been approved and are still on the market. So I'm not counting ones that got approved and got withdrawn. Of those, 30 were approved in the last five years. And another 50 are in registrational trials, meaning phase three or pivotal phase two. I don't know how many will be approved, but you got to expect a big bunch of new modality drug approvals in the next few years. And that's not counting other therapeutic categories that could become new modalities that I'm going to chat with Karen about in a minute. What do we think the next ones are? What I found that was interesting. So ADCs, they're almost not a new modality anymore. And what's important is that multiple companies are pushing those through. Almost every farmer wants them in the toolbox. And I think of ADCs and bispecifics, Karen, I don't know if you agree, they're both like next generation antibodies after MABs, right? Monoclonal antibodies. So ADCs, like quite often we see this, that the first couple are approved and then there's this long lag before the next ones. That happened with ADCs. And now bispecifics feel like they're in that lag and they are figuring out a lot of stuff because they still trying to work out the ground between being as safe as a normal monoclonal antibody and as effective as a CAR-T. Karen, do you have any thoughts about those modalities and the needs for those and how we're going to see them deployed? Well, one thing is we certainly have seen an explosion of bispecific and actually just multi-specifics in general. At Each time we look at the cancer meetings, we're seeing sort of big movements there. A big piece is around the targets that people are choosing for that. 
one thing on ADCs that's interesting is around the payloads. There's a standard toxins that people have used in the past, but one thing we've been noticing lately is some companies going after payloads that are more like innate immune stimulants. So bringing that immuno-oncology piece to the ADC side. With these very modular modalities, there's the different widgets on them to tweak. We're starting to see different components that people are working in there. And when I looked across these classes, a couple of things stood out to me. One is that several of these classes have common challenges, that if you solved it for one, you might solve it for the others. For me, the most obvious one is delivery. If you could figure out how to target antisense oligos to very specific tissues or cell types, that same targeting technology would probably work for RNAIs and gene therapies. Similarly, payment models are a really big challenge for both gene therapies and CAR-Ts where you're looking at one and done treatments or cures is actually the goal. And so companies are trying to figure out what payment models might work there. Manufacturing, I'm not sure that they have the same problems across the categories. Two that are particularly vulnerable to manufacturing questions are gene therapies, where they really need just new manufacturing, both capacity and complete step change in yields to get gene therapies to the next level as well as the fact that there's some vector problems that can create immunogenicity and various other things. And CAR-Ts, this goes back to the regulatory thing, CAR-Ts have several manufacturing challenges, mostly because they're autologous at the moment. They take a long time and they're individualized, which goes back to your N of one path that you talked about before. I think that was one thing that stuck out for me. And then the other, which we talk about a fair amount, is across the board, maybe with the exception of some ADCs, but maybe not. These are really being used for orphan diseases, rare diseases. There's a couple of places now where you're starting to see large, like as a PCSK9. Yeah, this idea of new modalities going to bigger indications. For example, in the case of Novartis's siRNA PCSK9 inhibitor, there it's competing with MABs that inhibit the same target. That's really a larger indication than some of the new modalities have faced so far. One thing I thought was interesting is we're starting to see companies that are looking to democratize things like cell and gene therapy through vector delivery strategies that make it easier to deliver new modalities without specialized clinics. And Soma was a company that I profiled recently that was doing this. Their take is to bring cell and gene therapies to the developing world through these kind of empty viral vector cases where you can pack in a lot of genetic material instead of having to have a specialized clinic where you engineer a cell therapy in these very rigorous conditions, you could deliver something in vivo that does the cell therapy engineering within the patient, but the delivery mechanism is just an infusion. We're starting to see modality approaches that could expand the reach of what has so far been a rarefied thing. 
There's another company actually, Immuneal, that was launched by Kiran Mazumdashaw, Kush Pamar, and Siddhartha Mukherjee in the last year, actually. I think it was around October. They are actually trying to create car T's for deployment in India that would cost like $50,000. And they, they want it to be, going back to the regulatory thing, they would like this to be, and I hear this more and more, regulated as a process rather than a product. Just a couple more things on this, Karen. One question that I got a lot of via Twitter and other people is what's next. One thing that's next, and I think this because there's two in registrational trials, is TCR-based cell therapy. So instead of CAR-T's, TCRs. Then everybody also asks the question of mRNA. We know that mRNAs have been approved as vaccines. Well, actually, let's be clear, authorized as vaccines, not yet approved. But what are your thoughts on how fast that's going to turn into therapeutic approvals for mRNA? Or if you think there's other modalities that are going to come through soon? For mRNA, I think there's going to be really tremendous interest that fuels the rise of therapies outside of COVID. The fact that the safety has been demonstrated on such a large scale, the fact that regulators have become intimately familiar with the mRNA modality can only spell good things in terms of accelerating the process of developing those therapies outside of COVID. It'll be interesting to watch companies, including Moderna, et cetera, but also others like Arcturus, for example, who have had mRNA pipelines since before the pandemic and see how fast their next wave products accelerate. Yeah, I think one other point about this, we also ran a story last week by our colleague Lauren Martz on Bayer, on the pharma Bayer and how it's going about its deal strategy. And I think that's really relevant to some of what we've been talking about because They've been doing a lot of cell and gene therapy deals. It's one of their major arms. So is gene editing, which is also another new modality. What I thought was interesting, extrapolating from Bayer and some other conversations I've been having with farmers, is that the way they consider manufacturing as part of these deals. Initially, Bayer said they really could only do deals with people who brought manufacturing capabilities with them because it's so different from the kind of manufacturing that most of these farmers already have in-house. And they had a deal with Ask Bio, that's sort of a CDMO. And they had a couple of other deals in there. Bayer says now they still want people who can bring that expertise, but they are building it up in-house. I talked to another farmer, actually Novartis told me that they have a lot of expertise now in cell and gene therapies or cell therapies in particular with their cell CAR-T. And so they think that that makes them a partner of choice. But I think what's important is that with these new modalities, especially CAR-Ts and gene therapies, and I expect other cell therapies that will be coming through, your ability to manufacture this is going to be a really important component of deals. We wrote a few years ago about make or buy choice. Do you bring your own manufacturing in-house or do you outsource it to others? And it seems like increasingly your ability to have it in-house will be a determinant of the value you bring to deal partners, to potential acquirers. The bottlenecks that people have faced when doing things externally seems to be a substantial enough disadvantage that perhaps that calculus has changed over the last few years since we've written about it. 
and certainly something we're going to be following for months, years to come. It's certainly an issue that's not going away. For this week's deal and focus, we look at Five Prime's $1.9 billion takeout by Amgen. Co-founded in 2002 by Rusty Williams, Five Prime's earliest investors included Kleiner Perkins, Domain, Versant, and the Wellcome Trust. Over its lifetime, Five Prime raised more than $500 million. It had a $60 million IPO in 2013. And right before the takeout, its market cap was just under a billion dollars. It's been a long and winding road for Five Prime. The deal comes about four months after data from a phase two trial showed a survival benefit in gastric cancer for the company's FGFR2B inhibitor. And for Five Prime, the results really represented a long-awaited good news. The company's first two clinical programs had largely flamed out during its previous seven years. And the company was on to its third CEO, Thomas Civic. The company started restructuring in October 2019. And this is where things really started to turn around. It got rid of its in-house discovery capabilities. Next thing you know, this program hit it. This could be, you know, Simone, as you're fond of saying, another one of these companies that followed the Raffman rule, which of course is the only sin in biotech is running out of money. But it's a fairly significant deal for Amgen as well. It's their biggest deal since its $10 billion deal for Onyx seven years ago. And for Amgen, it's really a deal that's all about China. The company believes that the MAB will be a growth driver in the region where gastric cancer is very prevalent and where Amgen already has a very big deal with Beijing. Amgen expects the region to account for about a quarter of its revenue growth over the next 10 years. This deal really seems to be a big part of where Amgen is headed. I do think this is just another example of something we're seeing a little bit of Five Prime was a big, splashy company when it debuted. It had a lot of really great science. We talked about this with the Rigel deal recently. A lot of times these companies make a big splash and then they work for a long time in the background. Very science-driven companies. And sometimes it just takes a long time to get there. Timing is everything. Well, one thing is that we don't see Amgen do big deals super frequently, but when they do, it can be a really interesting turning point for the company. Their acquisition of Micromet, brought in the bite constructs, the CD3 bispecific T-cell engagers. But we've actually seen them take that concept and work it into a whole premise of induced proximity platform or therapies that bring two different elements together, which bleeds over not just for bispecifics, but also into protax and into targeted protein degraders, things like that. So it'll be interesting to see what effects this acquisition could have within Amgen internally. Great call out, Karen. Ahead this week on Biocentury.com, the PDUFA negotiations between industry and FDA are in their final stages. Our Washington editor, Steve Usden, will have a story about them this week. Loxo has a new CEO. Senior editor Lauren Martz caught up with Jacob Van Narden, who is succeeding Josh Billinker as head of the Lilly unit. And we'll bring you our regular features, such as our daily data bite and the latest from our emerging company profile series. Meanwhile, the BioCentury team continues to prep for our 21st BioEquity Europe conference. It will be an all-digital event scheduled for May 17th 
to 19th on the theme Europe's Next Act. You can register for Bioequity and learn more at our website, bioequityeurope.com. All of the podcasts are available on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple, and Google. Music for all of our podcasts is provided by Kendall Square Orchestra, which connects science and technology professionals and other members of the greater Boston community to collaborate, innovate, and inspire through music while supporting causes related to healthcare and education. 